District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about the organization, visit www.cfact.org. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. Thanks for joining us. This week, I have two phenomenal interviews to share with you all here. Today's interview specifically will focus on my conversation with Eric Melito of the National Oceanic Industries Association, which serves the offshore oil, gas, and wind industries and basically acts as a trade association. Their mission is laid out like this. NOIA represents and advances a dynamic and growing offshore energy industry, providing solutions that support communities and protect our workers, the public, and our environment. Some of their objectives include to promote the common interests of members of the offshore energy industry, to educate the public and policymakers with scientifically grounded info about the industry and its impacts on our everyday lives, to serve as a resource for the government and other stakeholders, to influence public policy in support of offshore energy industry, to promote the role of the fair, competitive, and free market in the development of offshore energy resources, to facilitate a meaningful energy dialogue from diverse perspectives, and much more. You can find more about Eric and the organization in the show notes. But without further ado, here's my convo with Eric Melito from NOIA. I am joined by Eric Melito of the National Ocean Industries Association, which services offshore oil, gas, and wind industries. And we're going to talk about what is happening in the industry politically, trade association-wise, and kind of the future of these energy enterprises. So Eric, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Gabrielle. I appreciate it. Could you give a backgrounder on your role with the organization, perhaps your experience in the energy sector for my listeners? Absolutely. I am the president of NOIA, the National Ocean Industries Association. We're actually a small association, but we're an important association because we're the only business type of group like this that truly represents just the offshore energy industries. So it's our role to be the voice advocate and the forum for aligning all of our members behind the common goal of of building up a strong offshore energy industry and, and that is doing it in a sustainable way so that we're operating safely and in in an environmentally responsible manner. And I'll point to you know, a recent program that we put together. You know, we, we, we lobby and, and we talk to the media and, and, and we get out there and, and promote the policies that we need to make sure we have a strong offshore energy industry, both oil and gas and wind. But we're also a network and a learning and collaborative organization. So we created an ESG program uh, just last year. We've established you know, a climate position and, and, and principles surrounding uh, environmental stewardship, social responsibility, and, and corporate governance. And that's allowed our industry to really enhance and improve the way we, we operate and work together so that we're developing the resources and we're doing it in a way where we're um, seen as a, a good neighbor and a good investment opportunity for the investment community. And how has industry been doing for the last year or so pre-COVID? Was it really at a peak? Was it hitting a standstill? And then what does the future of offshore energy exploration look like to you? That's a very interesting question. And just within the past couple of weeks, I had somebody mention to me that the Gulf of Mexico is in decline. Uh, that could not be further from the truth. Uh, you know, most of our offshore oil and gas production comes from 
the Gulf of Mexico. It is true that that's been really the, the only place we've been producing for the past 60 plus years, but the, the, the production has been on an incline over that entire period. In the 80s, it was producing about 500,000 barrels a day. 97, we hit a million barrels of oil being produced there on average per day. And we've been producing at that level or higher ever since. So for 24 plus years, we've been producing more than a million barrels of oil per day in the Gulf of Mexico, which is substantial. Uh, around 2010, we got to about a million and a half. And then right before the pandemic hit, we were producing 2 million barrels a day, record production from the U.S. Gulf of Mexico. And it's being done in a highly innovative way. A lot of the work is done through uh, these advanced um, subsea completions. So you don't even have a, a surface impact. It's all done on the seafloor. And we are recognized, uh, the Gulf of Mexico, as the second leading offshore basin in the world, trailing only Guyana when you're looking at the number of discoveries. So it is a strong and robust uh, economic engine. Uh, our study that we put out by uh, Energy and Industrial Advisory part Partners showed that in 2019, more than 345,000 jobs were supported, $28 billion in investment. $5 billion in revenue going to the government, $8 billion going to the Land and Water Conservation Fund, most of that from offshore. And that supports you know, inner city urban park renewals, those types of projects. So it, it, it's, it's a great basin and a great area. Those jobs are, are mainly along the Gulf Coast, but we have a report that has a list of 2,000 companies, and there are companies in every state that support the Gulf of Mexico, even Hawaii, even Maine, uh, Alaska, Wyoming. Uh, it's because the, the supply chain is so long and strong that we need all types of companies to support it. Offshore wind is just about to take off, and that's because it's a maturing technology. It, it, it's really a, a, a technology and a sector that has um, matured in Europe. And now we're going to get the benefit of the lessons they've learned, the benefit of that technology advancement. And we now have seen uh, along the Atlantic, uh, many states uh, move forward with uh, clean energy or renewable energy requirements where they're now procuring uh, offshore wind capacity uh, for that electrical grid along the, the Northeast. Uh, you know, th there's been restrictions for getting natural gas up that way, um, and that's made it tough. But now we have an outer continental shelf that is set up very well to put these turbines in. We've got densely uh, populated areas that uh, are, are set up very well to take that power um, from the offshore to that coastline. And we have a federal government that has been moving forward over the past several years with lease sales. So right now, there's only seven turbines in um, the offshore along the Atlantic, but we expect um, there to be uh, 20 to 30 gigawatts of power by 2030 coming from the Atlantic. And a lot of that work is going to come from the oil and gas supply chain from the Gulf of Mexico because they have experience in marine construction that tra that, that, that can transfer right over to offshore wind. So we have one industry, it's been a, 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 around a while, but has peaked recently in terms of production. Another industry that's just beginning to get off the ground, but are very complementary. That's very interesting because you often hear that those two 
are at odds with one another typically, but I appreciate the clarification on that. Wind can certainly be a contentious issue. We're seeing that here in Virginia as well. But I want to actually direct you to some of the new executive orders that came out, especially in relation to the pause on new oil and gas leases on public lands. But people forget that it actually affects offshore waters too. Is that affecting uh, how your organization operates and, and what your partners are able to do? What are the concerns about that? Uh, will that potentially undermine your members' works in the Gulf, um, the Eastern Seaboard, in the Atlantic? Uh, so h- how how is your organization reeling in from Absolutely. You know, we heard on the campaign trail, and we were hoping it was just primary season rhetoric uh, about the potential to ban permitting and ban leasing on federal lands and waters. You know, o- onshore, you know, the, the, the production that occurs, the oil and gas production occurs, uh, mostly is on you know, private land. Uh, that's an interesting facet of, of U.S. energy development is that um, if you have a farm, you have, you, you have a, a, a large property, you actually own the mineral rights. And a lot of um, you know, ranchers, farmers, um, property owners have been able to lease that land for energy production and, and help you know, those farms and those, and those properties uh, and those businesses uh, thrive. However, there, there are 700 million acres out west that, that is owned by the federal government. New Mexico is the main area. Um, so onshore, th- th- there's uh, a lot of uncertainty around how the government's going to manage uh, those activities. That falls under the Bureau of Land Management, which is also under the Department of the Interior. Offshore, in, it entirely um, falls under uh, the federal government. That's also the Department of the Interior. It's uh, two bureaus, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement. Um, so they have a, a lot of authority um, to determine how that activity may or may not occur. At the same time, uh, the statute is, is very clear. We, we have a law in place, the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act, that, that directs the government to expeditiously lease the oil and gas resources of the Outer Continental Shelf, um, making sure that it's done uh, under a strong uh, environmental regulatory regime and, and safety um, standards that fall under that. Uh, and, and it also um, puts the government in the position of being a, a, a party to a contract. So uh, when a company wants to go out and develop uh, oil and gas in, in the offshore waters, and, and it's been limited to the, to the Western and Central Gulf of Mexico, there's actually 26 different areas uh, that our outer continental shelf is divided up into. And we've been confined to just two areas, which in and of itself is, is really contrary to the law because they're supposed to spread out the risks and the benefits. But that's where we've been left. And so when a company wants to develop an area, they have to enter into a contract, a lease with the government. It gives you the right to a three-mile by three-mile piece of land. But then you have a contract and you have the right to get permits so you can explore and develop those resources. So if they move forward and really did stop permitting, the courts in the past have said, and you can't do that unless there's a very good reason. And uh, you know, post Macondo, they tried to do that, and that wasn't even a good enough reason. And right now, uh, you don't have really strong justification for that. And if they stopped leasing, we think they would have a problem because the statute requires them to maintain uh, a schedule of lease sales and, and to and to implement those lease sales in furtherance of the objectives of the statute. So um, we think that legally um, they need to they need to move forward because this energy production is so important. Um, but they they did put forth two um, decisions. One was a, a secretarial order coming from 
the Department of the Interior's acting uh, secretary, and it basically transferred a lot of decision-making authority to um, the Department of Washington away from the experts in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, that has slowed things down. It's created uncertainty, but they seem to be sorting it out. Um, it still puts companies in a difficult position because they have these major projects that you know will depend upon securing partners and investors, and you know, they have to wait to, to get through this so that everybody has the confidence to make those investments. The leasing order is also um, of great concern because in the offshore, you still have to discover resources. You still have to go out there and, and do the wildcatting that, that that we had done um, for years, no matter where we look to produce. It's, it's different from the, the new onshore production, which kind of looks like manufacturing in many respects, but um, they still need leases there as well. But offshore, you still have to get out there and, and drill uh, new wells, do the seismic research to find out the best place to drill. And then a company could spend $200 million and, and have a dry hole finding no oil. But without leases, you can't do your business. And then without the permits to develop those leases, you can't operate and, and develop um, and produce uh, the energy that we need. So a lot of uncertainty, a lot of potential impacts, but we're still in a position where it, it, it's wait and see. The, the leasing um, question under the executive order now is with the Department of the Interior. And fundamentally, uh, we see any restrictions on permitting or leasing um, just shifting production away from the U.S. to other parts of the world. Um, offshore producers, uh, they invest in the offshore. And you know, the, the, the investment could shift from Mexico or Southeast Asia or West Africa. Uh, you could see, you know, Russia fill in the hole or Iran or the Saudis. So a lot of concern. And when this current program for leasing in the Gulf of Mexico, they have to do a five-year program that includes a schedule of lease sales. When this program was put together by the Obama administration in 2016, the Obama administration actually looked at it from a climate perspective, from a GHG perspective. They put together a report and the conclusion was that if there were no lease sales in the offshore, U.S. greenhouse gas emissions would be higher. And that's because the emissions would come from substitutions and they would be higher because they would be outsourced from other parts of the world where that production is more carbon intensive. Deep water production, and 92% of the Gulf of Mexico is from deep water, is the lowest carbon intensity oil production out of any region. So we have the best place to develop the resources and that's what we're promoting and asking the government to do. Interesting. And I want to actually ask you about kind of any misconceptions about the energy industry, whether it is the traditional oil and gas kind of offshore sector of it, where obviously with the BP oil spill, a lot of people kind of developed a resentment to the oil and gas industry. But I think um, even with crises that had happened and maybe just the advances in technology, I think people fail to understand that a lot of energy is refined in a cleaner fashion. Stewardship is often placed at the top of list of different responsibilities for companies. A lot of them are engaged in conservation practices onshore and offshore. And I think too many people still don't recognize that. And, and they maybe underestimate that even if you were to transition to, let's say, more alternative energies, you still have to rely upon oil and gas byproducts. It's not entirely going away. But what is the energy industry writ large in, in your organization and with your partners doing to advance stewardship while also tr trying to promote job creation? Yes. And, and you know, first and foremost, you know, the offshore energy industry 
uh, you know, on the oil and gas side and the offshore wind side. This is a high tech industry. And the reason why we've been so successful in being able to continue to develop resources um, in the Gulf of Mexico for so long and continue to um, discover them and develop them um, at, at an increased rate is because it's been uh, an industry that has advanced technologies to allow us to, to, to produce energy in, in, in water depths of thousands of feet with high pressure, high temperature, um, and, and doing it in a way where uh, we have an ever-reduced environmental footprint. And over the past 10 years, you know, the industry has worked very closely with the government uh, to, to improve uh, all areas, uh, primarily prevention. We, we want to make sure that we have multiple barriers in place to make sure we don't have any kind of environmental incident. And we also have uh, new capacities in place through the Marine Well Containment Company and HWCG. These are companies that uh, the operators out there must belong to them so that they have the capacity to respond if there ever is some kind of environmental incident. And then on, on the spill response side, but all the focus is on prevention. And when you're developing resources in these frontier areas, uh, we're doing that with um, the latest generation drill, drill ships, the latest generation equipment, um, the latest generation um, uh, information systems. Companies are able to depend upon uh, data analytics and, and artificial intelligence so that they're able to continuously monitor and improve operations so that they're in the best position to anticipate any kind of challenges that come along. Um, so for 10 years uh, since you know the BP oil spill, it's been nothing but continuous improvement uh, by the industry uh, through you know technology, through IT, through um, everything that we're seeing um, in, in our modern day world, um, everybody has seen, you know, the, the, the advancements through, um, you know, our handheld devices. And we have situ we have now a situation where a, a, an executive can be anywhere in the world and can be looking on uh, his or her handheld and see exactly how a drilling operation is going. And that's being done, you know, the monitoring is being done at, at, at the coastline uh, and, and at the rig site itself. So it, it's fascinating. And what, what I'll, one thing I'll highlight is that if you look at the offshore region, we have 18 facilities out there that are producing 10% of the total U.S. production of oil. 18 facilities. That takes up you know, nine square city blocks. Those 18 facilities produce 75% of all the energy offshore. It is done at such a scale and such a level of sophistication and innovation that you're able to do so much with, with, with such a small environmental footprint. So it, it's been a great story. Uh, I will also point to you know, how we've put together this ESG program, um, Environmental Stewardship, Social Responsibility, and Corporate Governance. Uh, there is pressure coming from the investment community constantly for operators, for companies to be doing um, their work at the highest level when it comes to um, environmental performance, climate performance, as well as social responsibility. So our companies, um, they're moving forward and they're creating their own emissions goals. They're, they're, they're putting out their own goals when it comes to how carbon intensive they can be. And they're following through with that. So we have companies that are referred to as operators and they hire out all the contractors. It's very competitive. All the contractors are not coming forward and saying, well, we've reduced our emissions by this much. We have a plan in place to reduce them by X, by 2030, by 2035 highly competitive. And it's great because that shows you in many respects why offshore has the lowest carbon intensity. It's because we have these world-class companies um, you know, competing 
to show that they can do it the best, they can put the best technologies forward. It's even a vessel company finding ways to decrease their fuel usage, which decreases emissions. It allows them to actually make more money in the end because they're bringing their costs down. It's, it's the companies that are working on the subsea infrastructure, uh, doing it through electrification as opposed to um, you know gas or oil-fired pumps and, 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 and engines, those types of things. So it's a great industry to be part of. Um, you know, we're, we're proud at Noia to represent it, and we have a new ESG report up on our website um, that really shows you a lot of examples about what companies are doing, um, not just on the environmental side, but you know, these are companies out of Louisiana. They're contributing to coastal restoration. They're contributing to um, food banks locally, and, and they're hiring. Uh, the local workforce, uh, and, and they're putting people to work through high-wage jobs. And, and that's a great story as well. Um, another area that the Biden administration is really focused is on environmental justice. So when you look at uh, the, our operations, they're 100, they're 100 miles away from communities. They only have these fence line impacts that could come into play, plus that money uh, that the government gets from companies for the right to produce out there goes to uh, these these outdoor recreation programs for inner city um, communities. So there's a lot going on there. And we talked about it, you know, over the past five to 10 years, we've seen the U.S. uh, produce more oil and gas and become more energy independent than ever. That's kept prices down um, for a a, at a stable level um, for, for a long time. And we often uh, don't pay attention to that, but that can be reversed very quickly if we restrict U.S. energy development. That's very true. And something I forgot to mention, I think people don't understand kind of the connection between offshore uh, royalties and conservation programs like the Land and Water Conservation Fund, perhaps an unintended consequence of them not perhaps uh, researching a little bit more. But is that a concern um, that you've heard from others? I know from the conservation side, that's Offshore energy royalties are the primary driving force between the land and water cons- for the land and water conservation fund, which was just permanently funded actually last year under the Great American Outdoors Act. And do do the critics not see that that type of action? I would hope that they are taking a, a, a very close look at that because if you you know restrict the offshore, then that funding over time could just go away. Uh, the Great American Outdoors Act, uh, it, it was a great piece of legislation because it you know, permanently authorized money for the Land and Water Conservation Fund and for our national parks. Our national parks are in dire need of, uh, of maintenance and improvements. And so offshore oil and gas is now putting that money forward. And there's been a new program that was put, put forth over the past four years when it comes to um, parks and recreation in, in urban settings. Uh, that's the outdoor Recreation Legacy Partnership Program. And I have a lot of concern about the impacts on a program like that that is really paying off for um, underprivileged communities where they now have um, major grants coming into their backyard to give them the opportunity to um, utilize uh, parks that that have been neglected or have never even been, you know, you know built. So um, we have a lot of concerns about those impacts, uh, you know, I think that there's been such a, a loud um, voice coming from a minority about stopping U.S. energy development that it's gotten caught caught up in many respects about um, how we can address climate change. But we can do both. We can address climate change. We're going to need oil and gas. We need it for our everyday lives, transportation, heating and cooling our homes, um, for, for you know, petrochemicals, for everything we use in everyday life, things that you mentioned. 
Um, and we're going we're gonna to need that for a long time. So it's going to be a transition. And even the International Energy Agency states that we can meet the Paris goals um, and, and do that uh, in a way that by 2040, we'll still be um, consuming oil and gas by, by the global community. Uh, but we should be focused on efforts to make sure we're getting it from the best places when it comes to developing those resources. So let's work together so we have money for land and water conservation fund. So we're producing the energy from the U.S. rather than relying on it from uh, foreign sources that do not hold the same values as we do and that they use energy in, in bad ways from a geopolitical standpoint. And let's work together on the climate change issue, which is really a demand and consumption issue. And it's something we all can work on um, over the next uh, several years. I think people will certainly take an interest in this issue. I'm not sure if I've seen this before where when people lose their livelihoods, it's not like they don't care about the environment, but that becomes kind of a lower priority. But I understand that organizations like yours don't have that conflicting view, obviously, and hopefully people will recognize that some of the other countries out there are perhaps the larger polluters than us. I think this country has done a pretty good job of lowering emissions, leading kind of creating standards for sustainability and for environmental stewardship where you can have private enterprise also balance out with environmental regulation. And I think a, a concern with people going forward, unfortunately, is that that model with stewardship and kind of this cohesiveness could go away, like you said, somewhat to appease kind of a, a minority of voices who don't recognize that you can have uh, both facets work in concert with one another. But I think people will also want to see that countries that pollute far more than us are held to a higher standard rather than uh, just kind of attacking the U.S. Uh, for, for steeping into this. But what other initiatives does your organization have uh, in the coming year? Um, any other projects that were unrelated to anything you discussed here today? Well, we are focusing on uh, the build out of the, the Atlantic offshore wind sector. And it's going to be interesting also to see how that could then lead to um, you know, major offshore wind pro projects in, in places like uh, California. And there's even some talk about the Gulf of Mexico itself being a, a region where we could take advantage of high wind capacities. Uh, but, you know, that's right next to Texas where they have major onshore wind farms. So uh, the government uh, may have to get a bit creative there and find ways to utilize that wind capacity to provide power to sources along the coastline. Uh, it, it's fascinating because the, the technology itself um, just within the past few years has continued to advance uh, rapidly so that you have uh, larger and larger turbines so that you'll need less of them and take up less space offshore. And then you're not impacting um, you know, marine traffic and fisheries uh, like you would with smaller turbines that you would have to put more, more of them out there. Um, so it, 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 it's just a fascinating industry that um, could, could, you know, provide a lot of business opportunities for a lot of companies um, in, in traditional fossil fuel energy development that, that now are stepping up and want to be a part of that. But, you know, if, if you, you know, take, take um, policy action that, that restricts uh, the oil and gas industry in the Gulf of Mexico, then you could put companies out of business that, you know, are well situated to do that work uh, on offshore wind. Uh, and we want to make sure we, we keep them all uh, alive and surviving through this and, and thriving. And, you know, the other pillar of uh, President Biden's um, policy agenda is, of course, economic recovery. Uh, so for the next several years, we need all jobs, uh, whether they're solar or wind, uh, but also oil and gas. We don't, we don't want to disrupt or sacrifice any, any job opportunity. So uh, we're working to make sure that we maintain a strong, robust workforce 
and, and use all the above energy sources to build that out and not sacrificing any because you're not going to take uh, away a job in the Gulf of Mexico on the oil and gas side, a, a high paying job like that, and, and simply replace it one for one. That, that's, that's not the way the economy is going to work. But what you can do is keep those jobs, keep that going and, and add jobs in these other areas so that we have a strong of a workforce overall as possible. Very good to hear. And where can people follow the organization, connect with you and learn more about your efforts and kind of track with what you guys are up to? Our website, um, www.noia.org, N-O-I-A.org, uh, LinkedIn and Twitter as well. We put a lot of good information out. Uh, we put a great report out last year on the economic impacts of the Gulf of Mexico oil and gas industry. It actually had two scenarios added to it beyond the baseline, one looking at no leasing uh, for offshore and one looking at no permitting. So no ability to get acreage and no ability to drill. And, and those are some pretty um, devastating co- uh, situations we would be in if, if those were allowed. You could you know, lose 200,000 jobs in one scenario and close to 300,000 in another. And we also put out a pretty good report on um, the build out of the offshore wind sector. So we put a lot of good information out there. We're a good resource. So you can follow us on, on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. But our website has a lot of this information. Very good. Thank you so much, Eric, for joining the podcast. And hopefully people will take an interest in your efforts, learn more about what's happening and and kind of follow and navigate the challenges and the successes that may come with offshore energy exploration. If you enjoyed my conversation with Eric Melito, make sure to subscribe and encourage your friends to listen in on the podcast. We have Lots of interesting topics and conversations coming. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And if you want to leave us some reviews, go ahead and do so on Apple Podcasts. That's greatly appreciated. Tomorrow, we will be joined by Congressman Byron Donalds, a Republican from Florida serving in Florida's 19th Congressional District. That was a seat that was vacated by Francis Rooney and... While I did talk about a multitude of issues, I'm going to give you guys a snippet of what he talked about for issues pertaining to his district, water quality issues, and kind of the synergy that comes with that and why he's really attuned to kind of the interests of his constituents, is aware of how to address the red tide issue, and so much more. You do not want to miss my conversation with him. 